Hey humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. We are up to episode 90. It's very exciting. Um, I've been doing these episodes twice a week. That may not happen all throughout. (laughs) I may go back to once a week. It's a lot of work and uh, I'm trying to keep up, but I may fail you and have to go back to once a week. So we'll see what happens. I'm going to try and truck through, but we'll see what happens. Anyway, um, this episode, episode 90. Oh, wait, before I get to that, um, I want to remind everyone uh, from last week's episode with Barbara Corrales, who wrote Urban Tantra, Sacred Sex for the 21st Century. Her second edition is available now, and I have a book to give away of Urban Tantra. So if you're interested in winning that book, please email susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Put the word book in the subject line and you'll be entered to win. And I will draw the name randomly out of all the names entered and somebody will win a copy of the book. Okay, so episode 90. Uh, I was in New York and she was in Johannesburg. And her name is Elisa Iannacone. She's a filmmaker, a journalist, and a photojournalist. She has traversed the globe producing works for National Geographic, BBC World News, Vice, Think Africa Press, etc., etc. She is also a survivor of sexual assault. She was raped by a family member in Mexico, uh, her home country. And... While she was going through therapy, uh, she did art therapy and discovered the healing process of the art therapy, and it gave her an idea for this book. Uh, It's called The Spiral of Containment, Rapes Aftermath. Uh, Penworks Media is the publisher. And she brought together 24 survivors who've all suffered uh, sexual violence. And what she did was she interviewed them about their story and took photographs that imagined how they were feeling, um, conceptualized their, their feeling after or during or both, and she chose to do this in the color of the spectrum wheel. So it's 24 colors representing, each, each color represents one of the people, and she herself is represented in black and white. She put them all together in this book. And um, I've seen a few of the images, they're, they're beautiful. And along with the images are then the stories that the people uh, have about their experience or how they feel now or how they felt then. Um, and no names, just color. So green, blue, red, that kind of thing. And it launches on February 20th, which is the World Day of Social Justice. Um, and on international... Women's Day, which is March 8th, there will be an exhibition of these images at the Oxo Tower in London, and that exhibition will run from March 8th through March 11th. So for those of you in London, uh, I encourage you to go see this exhibition of her work. Uh, I spoke with her publisher, and uh, there is a pre-order link uh, for Penworks Media, it's on heyhumanpodcast.com as a link to it. Make life easy for you. You can go straight to that website. Uh, also, he said to mention that anyone attending the exhibition in London, they can not have to worry about shipping and handling costs if they buy the book at the exhibition. It's a, a mixture of a heavy topic and a beautiful topic because something ugly is being turned into this work of therapeutic art. Um, Half a million adults are sexually assaulted in Wales and the UK every year. That is an insane statistic, uh, but it is a real statistic. And Elisa includes men and women. I believe there's one male in the the project. The rest are female. And uh, it's, again, I've seen some of the images. It's very powerful. I'm never sure how to segue into the usual stuff after a topic like that. But, um, you know, follow me on the social medias. And you can find me, Hey Human Podcast, all over the place on the social media. Again, you can always email me, Susan at HeyHumanPodcast.com. And 
if you would like to support Hey Human Podcast, you can do so by shopping at Amazon through the portal on the Hey Human Podcast website. If you go there, the homepage up at the top is the portal. You click on that, shop at Amazon as normal, and a little bit of your purchase goes to support Hey Human. It doesn't cost anything different for you. It just does that little kind of extra kickbacking thing, you know, affiliate thing. That's the technical jargon, the affiliate thing. I suppose it's a heavy topic, obviously. I don't suppose that. I know that. Um, but there, these are conversations that have to be had. And in doing so, shining the light, perhaps it will create a world in which these things happen less and less. Let's hope so. Um, if you are a victim of sexual assault, there are certainly phone numbers that you can call. In the United States, it's 1-800-656-4673. And in the UK, it's 0808-802-9999. And I'll put those phone numbers and websites available on the links page on heyhumanpodcast.com. I just want to say rape, sexual assault on any level, it's this is an everybody problem. And doesn't if you're a man, a woman, a child, an old person, this isn't ever doesn't the color of your skin, not the religion you come from, raised up in, whatever. This is a global problem. And we are part of the solution. By listening, by believing, by helping, um, we can help, you know? Okay. Here we go, everybody. Hello, Elisa Yanakone. Welcome to Hey Human. Thanks. Do you live in London? Is that your home? No, I'm originally from Mexico, but I left about 12 years ago and have just been living in different countries since. So I don't really have much of a base, really. <laughs> yeah. You are a cinematographer and a photographer. That is correct. And what is your specialty with the cinematography? I watched some of your videos online and it looks like you go into some pretty interesting places to document. Um, I would say that I've just always been interested in social justice and human rights issues. Um, though I wouldn't consider myself to be like a conflict reporter or anything like that, I am interested in certain stories in those environments. So I did work in the Middle East for a period um, and have covered a lot of countries in Africa and obviously Mexico. So uh, it, yeah, it changes. I guess my forte is really just cameras. And sometimes that means documentary filmmaking, sometimes it means photojournalism, and sometimes it means stuff like, like Spiral. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Before we get into your, your book, which is extraordinary, um, so how long, how long have you been in that, in the cinematography world? And I imagine you've gone into some pretty intense scenarios for that. Uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes I have. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it's not really hard. Uh, many issues while working in those environments, but yeah, I've uh, yeah I've had a chance to see some pretty interesting moments in history. I guess. <laughs> yeah, I bet um, it's exciting work. I'm gonna actually shut this curtain. I don't know if that's gonna make the sound better, but my the apartment I rented the apartment I rented in New York is on a, a very busy street, so I'm afraid it's gonna pick up on the on the sound. Yeah, such a, <laughs> such a great city. I love it here. I do. I love it. So, um, let's... Oh gosh, you, heard yeah. you what? What'd you say? If you heard Hong was actually down here. <laughs> oh, really? Are you on a busy street, too? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, we were connected through Jody Medlin of Penworks Media, and he is your publisher for this book. Um... So the spiral of containment. Talk. Let's let's just start. Maybe before that book became a thing, what brought you to that book? Right. Um, so I was raped in 2011 by a family member in Mexico, and really my career just completely shattered. So all of the stuff I was doing, I kind of put on hold. I just started a film company with a colleague and a, one of my best friends and uh, we were shooting a documentary in Mexico together with another colleague and uh, that just 
completely stalled everything. I never finished the film. I dropped the company and just uh, started selling tickets for, for the Toronto Film Festival in a basement office because it was the only thing I could do and I needed money. So uh, it did feel like a huge detour and, and in many ways a waste of time and a waste of life and just emotions all over the place. Luckily, because I went to Canada at the time, I got assistance from the government and got access to uh, an art therapy program with the YWCA Breakthrough, and that's what it was called. And it's the first time that I had a chance to express my emotions through art. And I discovered that it just really worked for me. It was easier to sometimes create something visual as opposed to communicate it with words. So that was the beginning of me envisioning this notion of having had wings and going places, but then them having been broken, essentially. And I just had this image really stuck in my mind and I saw it for, for years really. And it wasn't until I moved to the UK to do my master's degree, that this, you know, this idea just was really go going around and I decided to say, okay, well, why don't I reach out to some other people that have been assaulted and bring them over to my kitchen. Let's just have some collaging or some kind of arts expression thing together. And in the end, when I started speaking to people, they're like, well, I don't see, uh, I don't see broken wings. Uh, I just assumed in a way that everybody felt like they had wings that had been broken, but they're like, no, actually I see a red car and I see a plane and I see, and I was like, well, tell me more. <laughs> and then little by little it became quite obvious that everybody had something that had been I call it spiraling just because it'd been going round and round and round without end for you know however long and I just figured well I've got the skills to kind of translate that into visual so why don't I make it into a project and do my own picture as well yeah. so that was really the way that it began so when you were you were still in Mexico when the assault happened and as a family member I read in some of your bio work, uh, that you you filed a police report, but the family actually threatened you and tried to squelch you talking. I imagine that that sense of helplessness also fueled your, as you called it, spiral, too. Yeah, I think for me personally, I feel like the aftermath of the assault was actually perhaps more damaging in a way because... What happened in itself, because it happened with someone that I considered to be an older brother my whole life, was really emotionally shattering and just took a lot of work to come to terms with. But the loss of the extended family, which I had been so close to my whole life, my godparents in Mexico, you grow up a very religious, uh, in a very religious way, not that I am now, but at the time, you know, your godparents are like your second family, and I grew up as an only child, so these people are like my siblings, and so... The fact that I started losing them, without them even really reaching out to me, they literally just started deleting me off Facebook, and uh, then my parents started getting threats saying, well, you have to, you know, you have to tell her not to say this anymore and be quiet, because apparently rape is quite, as much as it sucks to say, it's like quite a common thing in the family, like it's happened to a lot of women in the family, I don't know about men, but... Um, so I just, the more I heard about this, every so often I'd get a Facebook message from some distant cousin being like, oh, don't worry, this happened to me too with our uncle. Or, you know, this happened to me too when I was eight or something. And I just started thinking, why didn't nobody say anything? Like, how is this something that, that we should just be quiet about and be okay with? So I, I started actually getting really angry. <laughs> That's good. That's um, a good reaction, I think. London at the time when you were deciding to do this when you were doing the art there or no you were in Canada you were in, in well because yeah. the reason why I asked that um, is because oh I'm sorry go ahead no I was just saying I did the art therapy in 
Toronto, and just as I was finishing different kinds of therapy, I moved to the UK to do my master's. So it was all kind of okay. Did like together? Did that inform your master's degree? Your your experience? Did it change how you went? I mean, everything informs it, I suppose. But the reason I ask is because uh, as you moved into this project, some of the research it, it referred a lot to <clears throat> sexual assault in the UK and Wales. And there was a statistic on your uh, on your video that said uh, half a million people are assault, sexually assaulted in Wales and the UK. That just blew my mind, and, and yet, and yet it didn't. And I don't know which is more sad: the fact that I was stunned, or the fact that I wasn't really stunned. Once it sunk in, I was like, "Oh, yeah, that doesn't surprise me." I guess, and it says so much about our culture. Did that, so you were, when you were back in the UK and you were getting into those statistics, did that, was that having anything, not knowing what your master's was in? No, it was actually a, a international journalism reporting thing. I wanted to go, um, never, never saw a career out of it, but just wanted to have the skill to be able to do it whenever the projects I was interested in called for it. Um, were you wanting to do that I before? Yes, okay. I was. All right, so um, it wasn't like suddenly, so I been, yeah. I'd already been accepted to it and ended up deferring for a year. Um, in my mind, I was going to save more money for it so I didn't have to get as big a student loan, but it turned out that this happened. I ended up getting a large student loan nonetheless. <laughs> but, um, yeah, no, I, I actually, I was already interested in that. And funny enough, though, after the assault, I ended up getting a lot of work of sexual violence so uh, one of the first documentaries that I started shooting in Canada right before going to my masters after this had happened was actually a short film on uh, victims of sexual violence uh, I guess and then in the Middle East the first project that I went to shoot in Egypt was actually again on all of the rapes that had taken place in Tahrir Square um, you know, and, and so for some reason, the topic just started to follow me. I think I obviously must have been attracting it somehow. And at the beginning, I think it was very difficult to digest all of these stories. But then the more I heard it, it was like I was processing my own through other people as well. It, it kind of helped. I don't know how <laughs> to explain it, but I actually think that going over the topic so much really helped me. Well, yeah, and you also found a tribe. In, in your own way, you know, that I think we are always seeking the familiar because it feels like home, right? And so if you are so displaced by a traumatic event, I, from what I understand, it's, it's you leave your body even. So to find other people that have gone through the same, some, you know, the same experience can bring, you can maybe even bring each other back into your bodies through that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think there is a lot of dissociation that happens. Well, it doesn't always happen, but it certainly happened to me throughout a period of the assault. And I, I think afterwards, yeah, you have like flashbacks and you're dealing with, with trying to stay in the present, which is the whole principle of grounding yourself and, you know, finding the now and all this kind of therapeutic work that helps you get there. But I completely agree with you. I think that finding other people, but also finding the statistics was incredibly helpful because suddenly you realize it's not like you're one in a billion people and nobody understands. It's like actually when you go to a restaurant, there's plenty of people there that are sitting at the tables that have gone through the exact same thing. And suddenly you think, okay, how, how come I don't hear about this like every day? <laughs> like how come I was unaware of this being such a massive problem until it happened to me? So I, I decided to just start this project to try and raise awareness, help help other people tell their stories, but also deal with the word rape, which is in the title of my project. A lot of people said, oh, don't call it, you know, the spiral containment rapes aftermath. Call it, you know, the aftermath of sexual assault or just an exploration of sexual violence. But I was like, no, actually, the statistics say that, you know, so many, like, millions of people have been raped. This is something that affects millions of people. Um, I can't shy away from the name, and it's quite cool because now... Obviously, with the, the media and the way that everything's going, I mean, it's become a very topical issue that didn't used to be that way a few years back. Um, but it's, you know, I'm glad that the kind of wave is 
is coming, we hope. <laughs> yeah. Did, um, through the work, which again, we will get to in a second to talk about the particulars of the book, um, but through all of that, did the, did your abuser, ha have you confronted or talked to your abuser? Has, has he come forward and apologized? Is the family, or is that still, no? sounds to me like he needs the therapy <laughs> you know so how I just the therapy that I did have to pay for he did offer in the end but I never took him up on he did the, the therapy <laughs> you did do he, the, he offered to pay for the therapy you did do well no I mean he that day that we just he said if you need therapy I'll pay for it and then I did need a lot of therapy and you know, even though I got a lot of government programs in Canada for a period, I just have to pay for it. And God, therapy ain't cheap. No, it certainly <laughs> isn't, which is really unfortunate because I'm one of those people that believe everyone needs therapy, <laughs> even the people that think they don't need it because their lives are perfect. It's still so nice to have somebody to talk to who uh, is an, uh, non-biased in your life. You know, they can see things from a different perspective. It's, it's very healthy and lovely. So how did you go about finding the participants for your book? So you, I, I want you to describe what it is because I think it's important that I don't just, you know, rehash the, the book. I want you to tell it through your own words. So talk about your decision process of how the book would come about and what it is and how it's represented. reaching out to rape crisis centers in the UK once I made the decision to move forward with this project um, and essentially just sent them an email with my contact details and said, 
if you, you could forward this to your clients, they can get in touch with me directly if it's something they're interested in. Some places said yes, some places said no. Luckily, places like Rape Crisis UK and Solid Women's State and Against Violence and Abuse and different organizations did forward it. So um, I got a lot of responses. It was actually a little bit mind-blowing. The moment I could tell the moment they had forwarded my emails, my phone wouldn't stop beeping. It was actually quite intimidating the first time it happened because I had no idea there was going to be a response of that time. You know, it's like, hey, I heard about this. I'm really interested. Hey, it happened to me too. I'd like to be a part of this. I was just like, oh my goodness, I don't even know if I'm going to be able to shoot everyone as in photograph them <laughs> um, for the project. I was like, okay, awesome. And at that point, I had no idea how many people I was doing or what the outcome was going to be. So I just decided to meet with a few of them and see where we went with it. I also went to something called the Clear Lines Festival, uh, where I met my first male survivor that was a part of the project. And he was doing a panel on male rape. Because I, I very firmly believe that I'm not doing a project about women who are assaulted I'm making a project about people who have been raped and sexually assaulted so this this is both gender as well all genders really um and uh you know adults children all races so I didn't want it to be just women uh so once I got him on board and then I started to get a, a little bit of diversity of ages um and, and races as well I was like okay we started talking and and then everybody seemed to be quite close to a color, so, which is funny because I always envisioned my broken wings kind of like, you know, bare from behind, these bone wings and this kind of dark black environment, no color. But all these people had so many colors, like, no, the car this guy was driving was red. Or, um, you know, I danced ballet, so it's pink. Or, you know, the dress I was wearing was blue. And suddenly I was like, okay, there are a lot of colors across the board here. What can I do with that? Then I got this weird idea that maybe it was possible to find a person for every color in the 24 color wheel, plus black and white, which would be me. And that seemed like a stretch. Um, but I thought that would be really cool. Like, that would be a very cohesive way of bringing all the stories together. Because at that point... I mean, everybody has such a different story. I have no idea how to relate them to each other. So the color thing seems like a good target. I said, okay, 25 people. Let's see if we can do this. And odd. There were many moments where I thought it was not going to happen because it's a difficult topic to deal with. I'm not a psychotherapist, obviously. I have been through lots of kinds of therapy, but obviously I'm not someone that can handle, you know, complete breakdowns or all these kinds of things in a professional capacity. So... Uh, obviously, I was looking for people that I considered to be ready to tap into this, which could be quite triggering um, and bring flashbacks upon people if they weren't ready. So I had deep conversations with people. I did have a psychotherapist in Toronto um, who was an old friend uh, help me kind of come up with some questions to try and assess how people might or might not be ready. So I had her advice and, and guidance as well. And then eventually, I think, got better at learning who was ready and who was not. I did have some moments along the way where people canceled the night before or people started having a meltdown on, on set, um, which I think was going to be inevitable at one point or another. Luckily, it wasn't many. Um, and then I had one person who might actually shot out, and after speaking to her, we both agreed that it just it wasn't the right thing for her to do. Um, this is an elderly woman and uh, hadn't reveal this to almost anybody since she was 15 years old and it just felt like a bit too too confronting so it was one of those projects where I was like okay I'm almost there I've got everyone and I was like oh man no I don't I don't know if I can juggle it then it was like what if the people don't fit into the right color can I you know can I alter that like <laughs> there's so many questions in the end somehow everything fell into place in the craziest possible ways but it was a real battle like there were many moments where I felt I was going to quit and just not complete it because it became quite difficult emotionally, financially, <laughs> just in every way. Uh, it was quite tough. But I'm glad it's complete now. We have all the colors and hopefully going to make the best out of it. <laughs> so the book, uh, it, it's, it comes, I wrote this down, February 20th uh, is the World Day of Social Justice and that's the day it will launch. Which that's a nice that's correlation. Correct. 
And then uh, yes. Jody had yeah. mentioned that on uh, two weeks later, uh, March 8th, it'll be... Oxo Tower. And that's all the photography. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, it's funny because initially it started as... Oh, I'm going to make an exhibition, and then I thought, well, technically you need a book for an exhibition, kind of, it would be a good idea. Then I, you know, Joey and I came together somehow miraculously and uh, went for it, which is great. Um, so yeah, the, both the book and the exhibition are ordered in color order from red to red, uh, cycling through all of the 24 colors of the wheel plus black and white, and in the book you actually get a chance to listen to well, to, to read all of the stories from the point of view of the survivor. So um, instead of calling them by name, I refer to them by color to, to respect people's anonymity. If anybody wanted to disclose their name, they did so in the interview, and I respected that as well. Um, but otherwise, you'll, he, you'll see the picture that we constructed together, and then you'll have in quotation marks essentially the, the full explanation of what that picture represents to the survivor. So in their words... At times they disclose everything that happened to them. At times they will not say a thing that happened to them, but how they were made to feel and what that picture means to them. So, and then it just has a brief introduction by myself uh, about how we came to meet, or sometimes just narrating my own story through their own through their own stories as well. So, it's really just a, a collective voice, I think, of people that are raising awareness about rape and all the different facets of it, childhood sexual abuse, gang rape, uh, assault by a stranger, by family members, friends, you know, grandparents, uh, and just trying to showcase how diverse this is and how there is no real target person to be raped, you know? This happens to Olympic medal winners like you'll see in the book. It happens to CEOs, uh, it happens to children, it happens to parents, fathers, mothers. It's it's really uh, anyone. It could be anyone. So that's the goal of the book, to, to kind of present that in that way, I guess. Did your participants, did any of them have uh, a catharsis through this? Did they come out the other side feeling more empowered, do you think? Yeah, I think the kind of unanimous kind of note that I, I kept hearing back is that even though by no stretch of the imagination this is something that's going to heal someone <laughs> because I think that that's like a lifelong journey um, I do think that it has kind of shifted emotions and it, I would say take people one step further in the healing process so I think most people said that it helped reframe the way they looked at the assault one person went as far as saying that they wanted to hang the picture on their dining room table uh, um, well dining room area I suppose to be able to share it with people and they're going to feel very proud to share it and um, I think that's really great because I, I think definitely the people I've worked with can talk about this image with a certain level of pride or a certain level of fulfillment, mm -hmm. which makes me feel really good, uh, but also lets me know that it has helped in some way in their own journey. Does the Me Too movement surprise you that it's that it started, or do you, how, where are you around that? I mean, it's one of those things where I just hope it continues because if you think, if you look back a bit, we had the Jimmy Savile thing, we had the Bill Cosby thing, we had, you know, we have waves of information that come and go, and yeah, sure, then we got the Harvey Weinstein thing, which, which has the Me Too campaign, and now we have the Women's March and all that, so I think there's definitely a moment of awareness that is not going to go away too quickly, I just hope it just doesn't go away at all. Um, did it surprise me that it came at that particular their moment. I don't think it surprised me. I, I I wonder what triggered it because I don't actually know what would have been the drop of water that tipped it over and said, okay, now is when all this information is going to come. I don't know what that was, that spark, but I'm glad that it happened. Um, and I'm glad that it's happening now. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I think uh, that the, the tipping point may have been during the elections when one of the candidates, you know, referred to women in such a you know, I mean, I think that that was the tipping yeah. point. I think when our leaders, when they have the, when they feel that they have the freedom to speak in that regard, um, that that 
that probably sent a, a, a sentient wave throughout the world, really. Certainly. I mean, it's a, an interesting thing because politicians speaking about women in that fashion is certainly not new. And, for example, here in South Africa, President Zuma has been accused of rape and the victim had to flee South Africa. Um, so, you know, but the fact that it was the most powerful country yes. in the world, I think certainly... Uh, and, and also, I mean, I'm sorry, but coming straight after Obama, which, you know, whether you agree or disagree with his politics, I don't think anyone can disagree that he was a very respectful man of women, um, and his relationship with Michelle Obama was a testament to that. It was a stark contrast to go from that to yes. Trump, who really, right. I have nothing positive to say about that man. Right. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm with you, sister. Um, <laughs> I don't, you know, it's... For me, as far as the politic of, of any politic, of any country, if, if you're a human being and you can hear people disrespect and disregard another human being's feelings to such a level and not feel that that is fundamentally wrong, it seems to me that yeah. that one, if one does not have empathy for the understanding of that, you know, if that that it's maybe time for some self-reflection on how you view the world, you know, and how you view your fellow human being. No, absolutely. Sorry, I'm just moving because I'm plugging in my computer. No, you're fine. Um, I I completely agree with um, what you've said, and I think that I mean. There's no point really rehashing how shocking what he says is, but certainly it's disappointing for humanity as a as a as a people. You know. Yeah, but you know what? The other the other thing is that I find fascinating is as you were saying, there's these family secrets. There are these things that go on inside the family, and I've always stuck to the idea that. We compartmentalize each other. We do it with our lovers. And I've said this on the podcast before. We do it with our lovers and our friends and, you know, our parents or whatever. Like, oh, that's, you know, drunk Uncle Bobby and he's racist. But, you know, he's really a great guy. He just has these racist You know, like we put, oh, that's, you know, crazy Uncle Donald. You know, he's, he's really handsy at dinner parties. But, you know, whatever. We just kind of... He's really, he gives money to charity for dogs, you know, or whatever it is. You know, we compartmentalize these people. And as you said, the tipping point for whatever, for whatever it was, I think finally the ballast has shifted, you know, has, has churned the ship up upwards and the, the ship is going down, <laughs> you know. Thank God. Thank God. Because yeah. silence is so damaging. Yeah, finally. Yeah, silence is so damaging. Yes. And to your point, when you spoke of um, the woman who has been carrying the her her what had happened to her for since she was fifteen, and now she's an older woman, and the shame around that, and the the distrust that it created, and you know the self loathing that it likely created, like all these things that this woman had to carry with her for decade upon decade upon decade, how is that okay? Yeah. How is that okay? It's not. It's not okay. And yet we live in a world, I'm not, it's not just America, clearly. I mean, the statistics are overwhelming. Rape is used as a, as a military tactic and has been since the dawn of yeah. time. I mean, there... Yeah. I could go on. It's very frustrating and it's hard to find the right words because it's just, it's so overwhelming. And I'm glad that you were inclusive of, of not just women in your project because I think there is even an extra level of secrecy on, on men who have been victimized, you know, and who are survivors of rape and sexual assault. I think the taboo of male rape is much higher than it is on women. Yes. Because we have this, it goes, you know, to this old social construct of, you know, the sooner a man or a boy has sex, the 
he is, of a man he is, if women want him, he is, you know, looked at like he's amazing. And it's this idea that, you know, if a woman rapes a man, which actually I have that case in, in my project, um, a lot of people are, oh, well, lucky him, you know, teaching him the ropes uh, early on or whatever. If it's a man, then it's kind of like, okay, well, he must have been gay. Well, so what if he was? <laughs> it's like, it's still rape. Yeah. And, and if he wasn't, it's like, oh, well, you don't really want to talk about that because that's not, you know, like macho, strong. How could he not stop this man? I mean, obviously, he's weak. I mean, God, as women, we have to deal with a lot. But at least it's possible, you know. You go up to people and people believe that it's possible that you would, you could have been raped. Whereas if a man says it, a lot of people still stare blankly at you thinking, wait, can a man even get raped? Like, is that even possible? So many people don't even think it's possible. Right. And it's like, God, if you have to battle even the possibility of this happening to you, now that's next level complications. I mean, and I'll never forget one of the things that the, the man in my project said. Um, he said as a, as a child, because it was childhood uh, sexual abuse and then rape, um, is that whenever there was any kind of sexual violence awareness campaign, it was always a woman in a poster or a little girl in a poster. It was always people saying, oh, you got a daughter, did you buy a shotgun? Uh, you know, it was never about boys. So he was left to assume that he was the only person in the world that this was actually happening to until he was in his 40s and he realized, actually, this wasn't normal. I wasn't the only person. The fact that someone had to live four decades of their life thinking that way breaks my heart because it's like... It's completely, well, to say it's unfair, but it just goes to say about what we have done as a society to not create awareness and not create a space where men actually can come forward and realize that they're not alone, they're not this weird creature, the only one that it's happening to in the world, and they're actually completely allowed to say this is happening, we need to respect that. Yeah. We have such a long way to go. We have a very long way to go. go. (laughs) But the the conversation starts it all. The com being able to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, in general, sex, just sex, consensual sex, is taboo, still. And if you're if you talk about it freely, or you know, a trollop, or you know, or a man whore or a fuckboy or whatever the words are that people put on it, there's still shame around that. Anytime a human being is in touch with their sensuality, their sexuality, they're vilified. Unless they're a pinup and then it's that's like this other realm that is somehow sanctified to be okay, but behind closed doors they're still talked about. And then if you put that on top like, oh this person is now sexualized uh, without their consent, that takes the taboo way out there, even further, and then they become, you know, an island onto themselves. But the conversation of it, the more you say something, I, I think there's so much power in words. Yeah. Agree. Yeah, completely agree. And I think that we need to use the more words that we use. Like, you know, yeah. To actually make the situation better for people and more inclusive rather than you know have an amazing wave of me too hashtags and then land worse off than we were before sure so you have to be really you know <laughs> really aware of the fact that we're trying to create a change but no change of this scale comes quickly and it takes effort and it takes repetition and it takes you know, a lot of people suffering in, in the, the in the inter interim period really. Yeah. Um, but I think we just need to carry on talking about it. It's the only way it's gonna change. Yeah. And and also that allies are extraordinarily important to if you that saying with the that they always say over the airport speaker, if you see something, say something. That is also true for each other as human beings. If you see someone who is hurting, say something. Whether you go up to them and say, how can I help you? Or talk to somebody if you're younger and you need to talk to an adult. But I would say talk to an adult outside the family because you don't know what's going on inside a family. You know? 100%. Yeah. Um, I had uh, my own cousin is actually a part of my project. She's a younger cousin that reached out to me when I was in London to be a part of the 
I didn't think I'd be able to include her because I had no plans to go back to Mexico, but then my dad got sick and I went back and I did it. Um, she actually didn't tell anyone for nine months. For nine months, she did not tell a single person that this had happened until she thought she was going to kill herself. She couldn't take it in and did speak up. And I just, I mean, obviously, because it's my cousin, but she represents story so many other people that have had the same thing and why because of judgments because people won't won't understand it they'll reject it and also because if your rapist does not fit the mold that people think a rapist should look like they're very likely not to believe you and that's one thing that i think we need to shatter right from the get-go is what does a rapist look like because in a hollywood film I'm sorry, but the reality is he looks like a tall black man in an alley. That's what we've been told by a Hollywood film, you know, for, for a long, long period of time. Or some criminal that's escaped from prison, has mm. ten tattoos on, on his face. Right. I mean, that's what a rapist looks like, right? If you tell someone, this drug addict that was drunk in an alley raped me, people are most likely to say, that is possible. I c could believe that. But if you're going to say, you know, the CEO of that company that went to... Cambridge, um, or whatever, is uh, rape me. People are gonna be like, no, right? Or my my pastor, <laughs> or my yeah. soccer coach, or my you know my doctor, or I mean 100%. my father, or my grandfather, yeah. or my uncle, or you know, or my mother, or yes, exactly, exactly. Yes. Yeah. It yeah. is just like for the survivors yeah. have every face, so do the perpetrators have every face. Uh, so I, I'm very glad that, that this is a book of images um, because I think that's also important that there, as there is a stigma upon what, um, or not a stigma, but a cliche, I guess, on what rapists look like, there's also a cliche on what rape victims look like. Posters on the back of bus with women beaten up in a shelter uh, doesn't really help the image, <laughs> which is actually the reason I didn't want to do this project in that way. I think there's there is an idea, an image that comes to your mind when you sit violence victim, and I think it tends to be like a really, you know, I don't know, emotional story almost. Uh, um, curling up kind of person that obviously can't stand for themselves. You know, there, there's this idea. And those those people, I mean, it's, yes, they are as well. You know, as I said, there's an Olympic medal winner in this book. I mean, she's one of the strongest people I think I've ever met. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people that have gone through sexual violence are incredibly strong people because they've had to overcome something quite big and get their together to carry on yes. so I think yeah the idea of they look like or what we look like completely oh I missed that last part the idea of what they look like or, or what we look I think it's inaccurate yeah all right that that I it's we're so far away from each other in the world I think that the the signal gets wonky sometimes um so the spiral of containment rapes rapes aftermath it launches uh again on the 20th right of february what what happens next for you or is it going to be a year of being on a book tour and and getting the word out or are you, what's your plan for all of this oh wow you know what susan i have absolutely no idea because the project has taken years. I have been 100% immersed in it. I quit my jobs, like all freelance gigs that I did. I quit entirely and have just been doing this for the last, I think, seven months now. So all I want right now is to do the best book that I can, the best exhibition that I can, raise as much awareness as I can, and then after that, I have hope that the doors will continue to open in a direction that's probably unexpected right now <laughs> I have a feeling it's going to it's gonna the doors will blow open for you <laughs> oh, well I, I think 
I mean, it's it's extraordinarily important work, obviously. Um, and I think again, the more we talk about this stuff, the more we see this stuff. It's we can no longer turn away. We have to turn toward. I agree. I agree. When, and the thing I think actually, people can turn away. They can choose to turn away. But I genuinely hope they choose not to. I, it's like the option to not look at what's happening right in front of your face is always going to be there. I mean, there are plenty of stories in the book of, you know, moms being aware that the grandfather was assaulting their kids and doing nothing. We as humans have a huge cap capability to put, you know, sunglasses on and say, nope, not getting involved. Yeah. But I really genuinely hope that we act cohesively as a society and realize that this is something that we can change but it requires all of us to collectively agree to and decide that we want to make this world a better place as cheesy as that might be um, and and perhaps we've heard it one too many times and everybody's too jaded about it but I think you know we can make this an easier ride for everyone it's our right to do so and our responsibility to do so as well Amen to that, sister. <laughs> Absolutely. Elisa, <laughs> thank you so much for being on Hey Human. I really appreciate it. I know that your schedule is extraordinarily busy, so thank you. No, likewise. Thank you for taking the time. Absolutely. And it's I, lovely to meet you. You as well. I, I, if I could, I would jump on a plane and come to the book launch. I just, It's, it's wonderful. Um, uh, I would love <laughs> You never know. Life yes, is... <laughs> you never know what could happen. Thank you so much. Oh, before I, uh, we go, what uh, you have websites and all that stuff, which I'll put links on Hey Human, but if you want to tell everyone how to find you. Oh, uh, sure. I mean, uh, I have a website, which is just elisayanacone.com. You can pronounce that. It's just spelled like I, the pronoun I, named Anna Conan is an ice cream cone, ianacone.com. Um, and then... Really, right now, if you go to the Oxo Tower Barge House website and just Google Spiral Containment, they'll have all the information about the exhibition. Yes. Um, and yeah, about it for now. At Spiral of Containment on Instagram, Facebook. All right. Thank you so very much, and good luck with everything, and have a wonderful evening there.